Do you know that a year after the San Bernardino terrorist attack, the FBI is still, quote, struggling to answer key questions, unquote. That's the headlines today. Well, welcome to the Terrorist Therapist Show. I'm Dr. Carol, a psychiatrist and your terrorist therapist. I'm here to help you and your family reach your dreams despite living in a time of terror. Well, let's look at this. First of all, let me remind you about the San Bernardino terrorist attack. That's San Bernardino, California. You know, we have gotten to the point, uh, sadly, I mean, it's like unbelievable, but we have gotten to the point where there are so many attacks on America, uh, terrorist and otherwise, you know, like school shooters, but we, they have begun to blur. And um, it's only been a year since this San Bernardino terrorist attack, and yet I will bet that you have forgotten um, a lot of the details of the attack. So before I go into my rant about why the San Bernardino, uh, why the FBI is still struggling to answer questions a year later, and um, the answer, I'll give you a clue, has to do with, in my opinion, the landlord of the couple who uh, committed the attacks, um, the landlord letting people into their apartment after the attack and after they were dead, and, um, and a lot of good clues, key evidence, was trampled on by the media and left there by the FBI. So, first let me tell you about the attack. The attack was um, created by, plotted and created, by a couple named Syed Farouk, that's the man, and Tashfin Malik, who is the woman. Syed um, was a man of Pakistani descent who grew up in America, um, and he was living um, in California. He, he was born in um, Illinois, but he, he, he and his family were living in California. And he, um, over, in recent years, he became more and more religious. Apparently, it started when he went to college, and which is kind of interesting because when you think about all the unrest that is happening at colleges today, it's really no wonder um, that um, people get radicalized because there is so much, um, so much peer pressure in a sense. <laughs> so the colleges have become almost like mosques in terms of getting people to some mosques. Let me put a let me do a caveat right up the t at the top here. Um, not all terrorists are Muslims, and not all Muslims are terrorists. We all know that, but just just uh, let that be said up front. Um, in any case, though, Syed, after he went to college, became uh, more and more religious. And his family noticed that, but they say to this day that there was nothing that he did that um, gave them any clues that he was going to plot a terrorist attack. Now, I think one could kind of find, uh, beg to differ with that, since not only did he um, dress um, in religious garb and um, go to prayers and so on, but um, he also looked for a wife on a website um, 
where and where he and he told the family that he was looking for someone. She didn't have to be pretty, but she had to be very religious and very. I guess what he didn't exactly go into was very committed to being a martyr and um, and dying for the cause. Um, and so he did find such a woman um, on the internet. It was a woman who was uh, born in Pakistan and um, they met in Saudi Arabia. They, after they connected on the internet, they, they met in Saudi Arabia, they got engaged and he brought her over to America. Now she is described as having been a lawful permanent residence. Now, <laughs> come on, um, trying to keep this <laughs> non-political, but still, um, clearly there needs to be better screening of people who are coming into America because, um, because in fact, there, when, when she was investigated, um, it became clear that in Pakistan and in Saudi Arabia, she was very much an activist, very much aligned with ISIS and terrorist thinking. And she was she was radicalized, in other words, even when she was in um, the the Middle East. So the two of them got together, and it was a it was a match made in heaven, you could say. Um, and they, you know, um, bonded over their over their desire to, to um, and their belief in radical Islam. So um, they. They married. They lived in Redlands. They had a baby. That's one of the, that's one of the um, very sad and and shocking parts of the story because uh, the baby was only six months old when they carried out this terrorist attack, and for the for a mother to um, I mean they had to know that they that it was likely that they were going to die in the attack, which they did. Um, to for a mother to leave a six-month-old baby um, is is not is is very unusual because that's the, the maternal feelings are very strong, uh, particularly uh, the younger a baby is. In any case, um, that's what happened. It's kind of interesting. There, um, they the parents or at least the mother bought the child, the daughter, uh, clothes for different ages. In other words, in the apartment, they found not only baby clothes, but clothes um, for various ages, you know, up through six or eight. There were dresses for a little girl to wear. So, you know, for someone to do that, that shows a lot of love. It also shows that she realizes she might not be there when the girl is six years old or so. In any case, to get back to the, the attack itself, um, they, first of all, um, the wife, uh, Tashfeen, wrote emails to her husband saying that um, she was not happy that he was being asked to attend a Christmas party at his work. He worked for the San Bernardino Department of Public Health, and there was a training event that was followed by a luncheon, which was a Christmas party, and it was at the Inland Regional Center. And... So she um, told her husband she was not happy. Now, when they um, looked at the home of the couple, uh, they found an incredible uh, um, stockpile 
uh, bomb-making materials and guns and uh, ammunition and you know they and they, clearly they had been pl uh, plotting this for quite some time but there has been question as to whether they were they actually had decided uh, for a while that it was they were going to do the attack on the uh, at this Christmas party or whether that was sort of spur of the moment once they found out about the party and once the wife was angry about it uh, because there were some some people said that um, it seemed like they kind of uh, sort of rushed to to do it at the at the quickly um, uh, even though there were signs of their having plotted this uh, an attack doing an attack creating an attack for quite a while they practiced um, the husband at least practiced at the shooting range and actually the wife as well practiced shooting uh, at a shooting range and um, she would have family members take care of her baby while she went to the shoot, shooting range. I mean, you know, they were obviously very dedicated to um, to creating an attack. So that morning at 8.37 in the morning on December 2nd, 2015, Farouk um, left his home and went to the Inland Regional Center, went to the training. He carried a, um, a, a bag with him, a, um, a knapsack um, and that had bombs in it, and um, it had pipe bombs. And he went to the center, and he was there for about two hours, and he even took pictures, uh, or at least one picture. With There's a picture of him in front of a Christmas tree with some of his co-workers. And then he left, and he and his wife came back to the event at... 10:56 a.m. and they came back armed with assault rifles and their faces were covered they were wearing all black and they sprayed the room with bullets and left behind this this advice this device in his backpack with several uh, pipe bombs now what's interesting is uh, afterwards some of his co-workers who were there said that they saw the backpack but they didn't suspect anything. I mean, that's how, you know, I guess he was able to keep his intentions um, fairly secret. Although there had been some reports later that he was, um, that he got into an argument with at least one of his coworkers um, in the past about um, political things, about uh, Muslim beliefs and so on. But in any case, they trusted him and they didn't, uh, they thought that he was going to come back for his backpack. So then, um, then the couple left in after they um, sprayed the room with bullets, um, they, they left in a black SUV. Now, people called um, the people who were still alive and could call 911 at the workplace, did uh, at least there was at least one and they um they recognized who it was um uh they thought they recognized uh his voice and his build at least one of the co-workers did and they called 911 and said who they thought it was at the same time there was a man um driving around who knew nothing about the attack at the center who um who just happened to see the black SUV cut in front of him when he was driving along, not far from the 
uh, scene of the attack. Um, but again, he knew nothing of it. He just he just felt that there was something sort of erratic or funny. It just kind of he felt it in his gut that there was something strange and something told him to memorize the license plate, and he did. And he called nine one one. And he told them that this black SUV had cut in front of him, and um, he just thought that he, he had to report it. It just seemed that there was something strange about it. So the police put all of this together, and um, you know they connected the, the license plate to who that was, to Farouk, and uh, it was a rental license, uh, it was a rental car, actually. Um, so that's how they connected it to Farouk and they started looking for this black SUV and, um, and the couple in the meantime kept driving around in the neighborhood. Um, all that time they, um, they, because, and, and it is thought that they kept driving around the center where the attack had, had, um, been because they were trying to detonate these pipe bombs that they had left behind. And it's thought that perhaps they were had left these bombs behind either for um, to detonate them for the co-workers, to kill more co-workers, and or to kill the first responders. So um, the police eventually caught up with this black SUV and um, knew at this point that Farouk was in there. They didn't know for um, until they there you know a, a fight a gunfight uh, ensued, <laughs> the two terrorists and the police, and um, they didn't realize until the police didn't realize until they had killed the two terrorists and and went to the car that um, the second terrorist was a woman was his wife. And they were surprised, you know, to find that. Um, I mean, you know, of course, nowadays, really, they're, they're, this isn't the first female terrorist, but still, um, I guess, you know, she, was, she actually uh, survived the gunfight with the police longer than her husband did. So that's probably why they were surprised. Um, so... So that's, that's, that's what happened. That, you know, that's the story of what happened on that day. But then um, what happened after that and that I'm um, so angry about is what I started to tell you about how the, uh, when, they, when they located the home of the, um, of the couple, uh, the, the FBI came and they, um, they found the bomb-making material and all the other art, the other rest of the arsenal in the um, in the garage, and they cordoned, They went through the house too, uh, but they cordoned off the garage, and then the landlord came, and and it, you know this was considered a crime scene because this was the home of the two terrorists, and instead of keeping um, making the whole thing keeping the whole thing a crime scene. Um, you know, being able to, they could look at all of the, the materials, not just the bombs and so on, um, you know, look at them and, you know, use them to investigate, not just look at, literally look at them. Uh, they left a lot of things there. And um, 
what was there was were things like driver's licenses and other identification uh, materials that identified them. Um, they were there were uh, pictures, family photographs. There were lots of personal materials. Um, and um, instead, the, you know, I don't know, was it that the landlord, you know, was so starstruck, he wanted to be, he wanted his 15 minutes of fame, so he let the, uh, the media in, that would, that would explain it. Um, and the media was showing a lot of these things on television and talking about them on the radio and taking pictures of them and all of that. And then, um, then the, the FBI um, director, James Comey, said at a news conference in Washington that he had seen the video of the reporters in the townhouse. And he said, quote, I think I'm neither unhappy nor happy. When we are done with the location, we return it to their rightful owners and we have to leave an inventory under the law about what was taken. So people get got to see our great criminal justice system in action. That is ridiculous. I mean, that makes no sense at all. And he's just, it's just a cover up. Um, clearly, they should have taken all these materials. Clearly, when now the news is that a year later, they still haven't answered all the questions. You have to wonder what would have, what might they been able, what might they have been able to answer if they had kept all of these materials that were in the apartment. So, um... You know, in fact, um, in fact, one channel dis uh, showed, you know, it was in the process, a television channel was in the process of showing photographs and that they found in the, you know, they were in the apartment. I mean, there was a, I saw this uh, when it, ha I saw it as it happened a year ago. And I was appalled at the time um, that, that these people were just sort of scrambling in to this apartment, just going, walking all over it, touching everything, examining it, delving into these, these personal pictures that the FBI should have been delving into. Um, so anyhow, this, on this one channel that she, they were starting to hold up photographs and, um, the anchor said, let's not show the child because there were photographs even of the child. And then later, um, Later, the network apologized for it. But, um, you know, this makes no sense at all. Also, the house was sort of a normal, cluttered household. You know, it, it, I remember there are reports of how there were, um, there was uh, ice cream in the, in the, um, uh, cookie, cookies and cream ice cream in the, in the freezer. I can relate to that. <laughs> I have cookies and cream ice cream often in my freezer, too often, actually. Um, alternating with Rocky Road. Um, so, you know, you see that and you realize it's just kind of, it seemed like sort of a normal household. Then there were signs, of course, throughout the home of uh, their strong belief in their faith. Uh, the Muslim faith, there was a sticker on a, pasted on a chest of drawers that says, uh, praise be Allah who relieved me from suffering and gave me relief. There were books, the, the characteristics of the prophet Muhammad, common mistakes regarding prayer. You know, there's nothing, um, they weren't books that were saying, well, <laughs> I mean, they, they're, I guess they're, 
there might have been, um, but it hasn't been reported that there were books that said uh, how to how to do make a terrorist attack. But clearly, they were looking up these things on the internet to know how to make bombs and so on. Um, you know, one of the things that uh, for this one year anniversary that was shown in the media is was that of a daughter of uh, a man who was killed in this attack. And she was talking about how wonderful her father was and so on. And she, she was um, making chalk designs in front of a mosque. She was drawing on the sidewalk in front of a mosque. She, was, she and some other people were drawing hearts and flowers and saying, we love you, you're welcome here, and all of that. Now, we all would like, um, certainly most Muslims are welcome here and don't create terrorist attacks. But it is pretty amazing that a daughter of a man who was killed, you know, having a father who was killed in an attack by radical Islamists, um, that takes a special kind of person, of course, to be able to do this. And that's, that's wonderful. And we would all love to hold hands and sing Kumbaya. But we, ha we can't be in denial either about some of the people um, not being peaceful, and um, the people who have been radicalized, whether they were radicalized in the Middle East and, and come here, or whether they're self-radicalized by being um, influenced by um, radical Islamists on the internet. And we certainly can't be afraid, and fortunately we won't be now. <laughs> Anybody who has been shouldn't be anymore now that the president-to-be will be using the real words radical Islamist terrorists. Um, we, we need to to recognize that and be, be more aware. Um, I, what else did I want? There's so much about this. There's so much that uh, that we... That we can learn uh, um, about all of, oh all of this. Actually, let me go now to um, the letter, the email and letter portion of the terrorist therapist show, um, because there I have a letter from um, from Michael. And he said, Dear Terrorist Therapist, My kids go to a school where they told them they're not going to celebrate the holidays, even to the point of not having Santa Claus decorations or secret, secret Santa gifts. I am really angry this political correctness is going too far. Well, Michael, I can't agree with you more. Um, I have been seeing stories about schools like yours, apparently. I, um, I don't know whether you're where your school is, but uh, I've been reading about a school in Oregon, and that I'm sure that's not the only school, um, who sent around a memo telling teachers that they were going to um, essentially ban Santa Claus. Now, and parents um, either got some of these letters too or, or saw the less letters. In any case, they found out about this. It wasn't really a secret because how could you ban Santa Claus and keep it a secret? Um, 
And and a lot of parents were angry about this. Now, the reason they gave for banning Santa well, actually, once this came out and the media got a hold of it, <laughs> and that was the headline, school ban Santa Claus. Um, you know, then they tried backpedaling, the person who had sent this memo tried backpedaling and saying, well, no, we just really don't want to overdo it. It's not that we're going to ban Santa Claus altogether. I mean, they were until the media got a hold of it and, and, uh, and, and outed them. Um, but they said, well, but people um, are going to be offended if we have too much that, you know, the, like a religious holiday. Not that Santa Claus, I mean, clearly Santa Claus, yes, he's connected to Christmas and Christmas is a Christian holiday. Yes, all that's true. But, you know, <laughs> many people of, of other faiths sit on Santa Claus's lap. And, and ask him to bring him things, bring them things for, for, for Christmas. Uh, I myself was one of them. I used to sit on Santa's lap and ask for things and um, didn't feel like I was, uh, you know, a sin because I'm Jewish and I'm sitting on a, a Santa Claus's lap that has to do with, with Christmas. Uh, I mean, it's become sort of an American tradition. It's not really... And, um, you know, it's nice to share the holidays. I mean, for example, uh, there are decorations in most cities, certainly where I live, there are decorations for Christmas, there are decorations for Hanukkah, you know, it's, it's sharing all of that. Um, but uh, the problem is that um, we have become so incredibly politically correct that even Santa Claus, I mean, think about this. Now, the reason why um, this is particularly important today, um, this week, the one-year anniversary of the San Bernardino attack, see, I'm bringing it all together here, folks. <laughs> you wondered where I was going, but I'm making a connection. The connection is, think about it. What did I say at the beginning? Why did the, this attack happen I mean, they would have, these two terrorists, this couple, were planning an attack for years, at least a year. They were, you know, shooting at the range and so on. They were going to make an attack. But why, and it would have been somewhere. But why did they, they do it that day, in that place, that time and place? Because it was sort of the breaking point, at least for the wife, that she was angry that her husband was uh, going to a Christmas party. So... In other words, they were offended by his work having a Christmas party. Do you see how this is like Santa Claus at school? Now, if we're going to be frightened every time we want to celebrate our holidays, um, you know, all holidays, <laughs> um, we're going to be... <laughs> I mean, this country is going down the tubes, you know. I mean, it's just making me think of the whole thing with the flag, not standing up to, for the national anthem, not respecting the flag. There was something at a, at a school, at a college just recently, um, where they, they insisted that the flag be taken down and somebody burned the flag at this college because they were angry that Trump won. I mean, really, this is, this is going insane, folks. <laughs> You know, the traditions of this country are under attack. And we have got to stand strong and not let things that we, um, that we hold dear, that for, for, since the beginning, uh, since our founding fathers, 
we have been holding these things dear. The flag, um, the national anthem, Christmas, holidays. I mean, if we're going to shudder every time we think that there might be um, some people who are going to be offended from something that is not meant to offend them. I mean, that's not why Santa Claus is at school. It's not meant to offend anybody. I mean, it's not done purposely. Even the Christmas party that was the subject of the attack was not meant. They didn't do that on purpose because they knew Farouk was a was an employee there and they wanted to purposely offend him by having a Christmas party. I am sure that this place had Christmas parties before Farouk and, well, it'll be interesting. I wonder if they're going to be having one this year. If they do, I'm sure it'll be more subdued. But the point is that, that places all over, workplaces, schools, have, have holiday parties all the time. We cannot now start to shiver and shake at the thought that somebody might take it personally, think it's against them, and and create an attack. Or even if they don't create an attack, that they'll be offended. And, and I mean, seriously. I'm, certainly I am against doing anything to purposely offend any religion or any race or any, any gender, any kind of, any minority. I'm certainly against purposely doing anything to offend anybody, but these things were not purposeful and they are part of our tradition. And we should not, we, we've come to a crazy point where at the same time that the terrorist attacks and shootings and so on have, have gotten blurred in our mind, there are so many, um, at the same time, we're worried about celebrating or, or, or appreciating traditional American icons. This is crazy, folks, and I want to bring your attention to it. I want to, um, I want to um, first tell you, I want to thank you for listening to the show, The Terrorist Therapist Show. I'm Dr. Carol, your terrorist therapist. I know I provoke you every podcast. I'm trying to get you to think about these things. And I want to leave you with one uh, thought, and that is remember the man that I told you about, the driver who thought there was something strange about the black SUV cutting him off? Uh, and it wasn't about really it wasn't about road rage or anything. They, they didn't get rageful at each other. It was just that he had this feeling there was some kind of, probably because there was something erratic or frenzied about it. Um, that man uh, has said that he listened to, he remembered and listened to the slogan, if you see something, say something. And so not only, folks, do our FBI have to step it up and not leave evidence lying around to be trampled on by the media and so on. But we need to step it up and remember that it's more than a slogan. If you see something, say something.